When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope your week is treating you well. Mine is truly treating me well right now. If you had been here Monday, if you listened to Monday's episode, then you know that I was just like a little bit dramatic, and I just want to confirm the drama uh, was real. It was out of proportion. All is well. Everything's okay. I just needed to like get my bearings here and get situated to make it feel more comfortable. And we've done that. I put baking soda around the house. That makes it smell like people like it took some odors out. And then I put in Palo Santo and diffusers and that makes it smell like we live here. And everything's feeling much better. I feel significantly better. In fact, I even like get the Sewanee lure. If you don't know, Sewanee, Tennessee is like this extremely tiny town. Like I'm 90% sure the entire town is the college. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, I get it. Like Carborough, North Carolina. No, not like that. It's not like a normal university town. It's like literally... Everything I think is like owned by the school. I'm, I could be making this up. Don't sue me for slander if I'm wrong, but like it's, it's only the school. It's like on the tip, tippy top of a mountain and it's like three restaurants, maybe four restaurants, one hotel, and then no grocery stores, like no gas stations. There's a kind of service station where they have like old timey gas pumps and they will pump your gas for you. It's like that. Like it feels like I've stepped back in time. And I think that's the allure, right? Like I think that's like what the magic that everyone's experiencing. And I and for a minute, you know, like I'm a city girl. Like I like being around things. I like modern convenience. And it took me a minute to adjust. And I thought, like, am I gonna have to like love the woods in order for this to be for me? And Maybe I will love the woods more by the end of the summer, but I think what I'm really finding is just it's like inviting me into a slowness and a stillness and a simplicity that it's like harder to get at home, even though I'm working just as much, if not more than usual, the days feel softer and slower and gentler and I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I think that's great. So that's been amazing. My husband and I have been playing tennis like every morning. Also amazing. So past Sarah Jane was a little bit dramatic, but current Sarah Jane just wants to reassure you that all is well, that this is what we should have expected. If you've been here for a while, I don't even know why you're surprised at this point. Okay, let's get into today's episode. So today I'm talking through each Enneagram type, the common stereotypes, and what's often going on beneath the surface. I'm going to group them by the centers of intelligence, so the body, 
head, and heart types. And we're going to start off with the body types today, types eight, nine, and a one. So our type eights, right, are challengers. The stereotype here for our eights, um, I picked controlling. I also picked looking for a fight. So I would, I just want to say to eights, like I have structured it like you're not blank, you just blank, right? So you're not controlling, you just don't want to be controlled. I think this is one of the most common things that I get in my DMs from eights. It's like, I'm not controlling. <laughs> I just don't want to be controlled. Like, don't misunderstand me. I'm not out just like looking for power. I want more than anything just to not have people have power over me and or abuse their power over others. And so I just want to say like, yes, I agree. You're not controlling. You don't want to be controlled. Um, but we're going to get a little bit deeper into these things um, in a minute. We're going to talk about why people think this about us, right? Like, so often these stereotypes come from some semblance of truth, right? Like some place, some experience that people are having with AIDS is telling them that they're controlling. So like, what is that, right? Like, let's go deeper into it. And then we're also going to talk about like what people should know. Like, what do we need to know about this? And then how do we shift it? right? Like how do we start to work on this in a, in a personal growth way? Because often this energy that we have, like I'm not this thing, I'm this other thing that's more palatable to me. It's actually per- keeping us from growing because if we can like make it sound less rejectable is maybe the easiest answer. Like if we can make it sound more palatable, And, you know, more palatable to us even like, okay, this is what I think is good. Like I think a great eights are a great example of this. Like if eights are controlling, well, then they're being the exact thing they don't want to be, right? They don't want to be controlled by others. So therefore, if they're controlling, then they must be doing that to other people. And that's not okay. That doesn't feel good. So being called controlling feels like a really negative thing. So then it's like, well, I'm going to take that away from myself and just say, like, I'm not controlling. I just don't want to be controlled. And sometimes in order to not be controlled, I have to take control. And that makes me controlling, right? So (laughs) it's not that you're, like, preoccupied with power, but it can be perceived that way for sure, right? Like, other people engaging with you who don't understand what where the motivation is here, right? That you're just trying to ensure your freedom and the justness of others. Those who don't understand that or maybe have different agendas are going to perceive your behavior as controlling, right? So how do we work on this? How do we grow through this even if we don't accept the language? And so with that, I want let's let's talk about controlling for a second in that regard. Um, so if the fear here, and I like to think about growth as meeting an unmet need. So how can I nurture myself through an unmet need? So if the unmet need or fear, um, you know, let's they go hand in hand, right? If the unmet need or fear here is to be control, not be controlled, or the fear of being controlled, or the fear of of misuse of power. And our initial instinct, right, is that like it's my job to take over. It's my job to assume the power so that no one else can, you know, so the wrong people don't assume the power. That is an understandable instinct, right? Especially from the eight standpoint, like in childhood, you learned like 
anyone can betray you, like people can't be trusted, that people can turn on you in an instant, that you have to defend yourself with strength. So it makes sense that this would be the first response, the easiest response. But what's another response? What's a different, more nurturing option? And that may be to accept the release of control, recognize the illusion of control, delegate, ask for support, admit a fear. These are all options that are available to you that don't center around assuming the power position. I probably should have made this like a multi-part episode because I know you guys don't want to just sit and listen to me talk to myself for an hour and a half. So we're going to move on, but I do feel like we can have a longer conversation about this. So hindsight is 2020. We can make some adjustments in the future. If we want to go deeper into these stereotype episodes, I mean, this could be a full on series. But for now, let's move on to type eight secondary stereotype we want to talk about, which is you aren't looking for a fight, but sometimes that's the easiest path to defense. So what this can look like for eights, right, is eights are often seen as highly conflict forward or aggressive um, as the fighters. But then the eights that I know, right, don't necessarily resonate with that. It's like, I'm not looking for a fight. I just want to tell you the truth or I'm just going to be direct or I don't want to like waste our time softening the blow all the time. Like I just want to be like, get to the point. Right. And additionally, at some point, I imagine in a significant portion of type eight's lives, not all of you, but some of you, you experienced the need to fight, the very valid need to defend yourself. And so that became the way you learn to protect yourself and others. And whether that's like a verbal conflict or a physical conflict, like that everybody's going to be different, but just I'm I'm in it to win it <laughs> energy of like if someone's going to hit throw a blow emotionally or physically, like I will throw the bigger blow. Um, and I will win this because I will not be controlled. I will not be taken over. I will not be consumed. And so I get it. Like our healthy eights, especially like you have done some work. Maybe you've like never been in a place where you were just like a fighter. I know a lot of you have, and I know a lot of you haven't. Um, maybe you didn't like poke and prod for that aggressive attention or aggressive connection, but some of you did. And I just want to say like, I understand this desire to be like, I'm not looking for a fight. The fight's fine in me. Or sometimes that's just the easiest path, right? Like that, that comes most naturally, but I'm working to unwind that. Or I'm not looking for a fight. I'm just honest. When we say this, right, this is our way of saying, like, people are perceiving you as looking for a fight. Whether you are looking for a fight or not, that is the experience that others are having with you. So, yes, you may not be looking for a fight. You may just be like, I'm telling the truth. I'm giving it to them straight. I'm not willing to back down when someone's trying to overpower me or take advantage of others. I get it, right? I get where you're coming from. and. People think you're looking for a fight because you consistently are finding yourselves in a fight. 
And oftentimes we're looking at who's the common denominator. And if there's one person who's like consistently, consistently in conflict, it's going to appear as though you are consistently seeking conflict. And so if we want to remedy this and we want to shift that perspective, we don't just say, I'm not looking for a fight. We say, okay, what is it that is giving this impression and how do I grow through this? What's the unmet need and how do I nurture that? So for eights, right, this unmet need often is validation, softness, love, affection, tenderness, care, because eights often are not able to or afraid to seem vulnerable. And I think this comes often from an altruistic standpoint, right? If you are used to being the one who's protecting, if you show weakness, then people might lose faith in you. They might find that off-putting because in your mind, weakness is unacceptable. And so if you're showing weakness, you will become unacceptable. And so instead of doing that, let's argue with that thought a little bit, right? Weakness is not unacceptable. Softness is not a waste of time. It doesn't make you weak. It doesn't make you vulnerable. Um, It is something that I think a lot of AIDS I almost find disgust in. The idea of like becoming soft is almost like offensive that I'm saying this to you. And I just want to push you in that direction because I, I want you to open doors for love and nurturing and support because, again, what we're trying to grow through here is this message that you're just looking for a fight, that you have to live in conflict, like that you have to be in control. Like how do we open up space for you to be loved through being able to show up and be supported instead of having to fight to be heard? So um, a simple practice that you might want to try is simply asking what's the vulnerable truth beneath this behavior, this act. So if you feel yourself wanting to fight, if you feel yourself kind of wanting to gather control or what I like to call it, collect responsibility, catch yourself and go, what is the vulnerable feeling or thought that I'm trying to ignore by doing this? And then tend to that instead of moving aggressively toward another person. Okay, I'm recognizing two things right now. Number one, this is going to vary significantly on levels of health, but I'm just going to note that I'm speaking to average levels of health here. If you're like, I never get in fights with anyone, um, okay, cool. Um, Some eights do, (laughs) right? Um, But I also want to say, Uh, I need to speed this up because I want to make sure that I get through all the numbers and I just lingered on that eight because I wanted to. I feel like this should have been a series. Um, Okay, we're going to move on to type nine, not me considering if I should just go ahead and pause this and make it a series instead of all the other podcast episodes I have planned. Um, No, 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 no. We're going to do this. Okay. All right actually, what the heck? Let's make this a series. I think that's the move. Let's do (laughs) body types today. And then we're going to do our heart types next week. And then we'll do head types the following week. 
I think that's the right thing to do because I want to linger. All right. Stereotypes for type nine. Stereotype number one is that type nines are lazy. This is my least favorite stereotype. And type number uh, stereotype number two is that type nines are shy. So first of all, right, like type nines, you're not lazy. You're not just like arbitrarily lazy, but you do just give a lot of emotional energy to the needs and thoughts and feelings of other people, which can really be exhausting. And prioritization can be really tricky when it comes to energy and tasks, right? If you're struggling to prioritize your energy and your tasks and you're tired or trying to kind of avoid your emotions, it can look to other people as though you are quote unquote lazy, right? Because they're seeing you not do the things, but you're experiencing so much more under the surface than that, right? It's so much more complex than that. It's not like you just don't want to do the things. It's like, where do I start doing the things? I don't even know how to begin doing the things. I'm so freaking tired. And I just want to sit on this couch right now and turn off my brain, turn off my feelings, and just have a moment where I'm not worrying about what everybody else wants and needs or how everybody else feels. I just want to like zone out. That is, it makes complete sense understanding how you're fixated, right? Like if you're fixated on not losing connection with other people and you're focused on kind of being as easy to get along with as possible, like that takes a significant amount of energy. I use you guys as an example in the Honest Enneagram in the introduction just as a way when we think about like disciplining ourselves, right? It doesn't help to think about, okay, I'm lazy, I'm just, I'm just lazy. That's just who I am. That's not going to support you as much as going like, I give a lot of emotional energy to other people and I find prioritization to be tricky. I find it difficult because one, I have a hard time prioritizing myself. So anything that I want or need is low priority by nature, but also because I have this desire to like numb out and to, you know, not feel too much emotion because it's it feels stressful and overwhelming. And that could make me have negative emotions, which can make me hard to be around, which can make me difficult to get along with. It goes on, you know, it feeds itself, right? So if we focus instead on how can I set realistic boundaries? How can I be more truly who I am? How can I take the needed space that's available to me to tend to myself? How do I get in touch with my honest feelings so that I'm not numb to my life? And then how do I ask for support when it comes to prioritizing my tasks and my energy? And how do I sit down and just allow the space and the energy to replenish not numb, but replenish through activities and things that bring me true, deep, real rest instead of the numbing that feels more comfortable and easy for a minute, but ultimately leaves leaves me feeling like I can't get my head above water. The second one I want to talk about is, um, yeah, you aren't shy. You just don't want to interject. Sure, some of some of you nines are going to feel shy. Some of every number are going to be shy or feel shy in a moment. But in general, like the nine character is perceived often as like shy or timid 
when what's going on beneath the surface is like they're just waiting for someone to ask them to speak. They're trying to be polite and considerate and not interject and insert themselves because for the the nine morality, right, is non-judgment. It's waiting your turn. It's making sure everyone else gets a chance to speak. It's not stepping on other people's toes. It's not being self-involved. So if this is your morality, right, this is like your sense of like, this is what a good person does, quote unquote, then of course it's going to feel like interjecting is bad or wrong or taking up too much of the conversational space is reprehensible in some way. But I want to, I just want to say... I know we we know where this comes from, right? Right. We know that in childhood at some point you were made to feel, whether that's early birth, early pre-memory, post-memory for some of you, right? That it's better for you to be invisible, right? To not exist, to not take up space. It's just easier for everyone if you don't take up space because there's just a lot going on here. Maybe you have a large family. Maybe you have a high conflict family. Maybe you're the middle child, right? It's usually like something along those lines where it's like you feel like the least you could do is not exist, to not be there taking up room in the room, emotionally, physically, through talking, taking up too much talk space. So The thing I really want to reiterate to you here is obviously like that's going to make you seem shy, right? Like if I ask you a question and you just answer with a yes or no, or you maybe you don't speak at all, or maybe you wait for everyone else to speak before you speak up, but then you speak up in a kind of a quiet way because you're not like confident that you're like ready to speak up, like that's going to seem shy. So if we don't want to appear shy, or we, you know, we're uncomfortable with that being spoken over us, we can explore what's the unmet need and how can I nurture it? So the unmet need here is the belief that your voice matters, that like people actually like you and like want to hear what you have to say and that the more you speak, the better for all of us. And I'm going to say this in like a really blunt way. It's hard to have dinner with someone who won't talk. It's harder. I we, I need you to talk. I need you to tell me a story. I want to ask you questions. Sometimes I go to dinner with friends and I am asking them question after question after question and they're answering with just yes or no. And then I am like carrying that conversation, right? So if you don't want to like, like if you I'm trying to reverse psychology you here. I'm trying to be like, give me more because that's easier. It's easier to work with more. You do not need to worry about being someone who talks too much. You just don't. Like that's not your problem. Let it go and throw in statements out of nowhere. You know, just like interject, be there. Um, And I think, you know, as friends of of a nine, as someone who like loves nines and wants more of them, one way that we can do this is not to ask yes or no questions, to ask open-ended questions, to ask clarifying questions, to not interrupt, and to also hold space for non-judgment. You know, don't be judgmental. And 
ask questions, like make a point to ask them specifically because they may not like if it's not like a round table discussion where you have to like go around and everybody answer, they may just sit there and listen and not share and secretly wish they could share. Some may not, you know, everybody's different, but make a point to engage them in the conversation and then not to interrupt and really show curiosity. Showing curiosity is showing love to most nines. That being said, for our nines, if you want to shift this, it's your job to put yourself out there, interject a little bit, talk more than feels a little bit comfy, start with someone that you really trust, and take that risk of putting yourself out there a little bit more and taking up space because we want more. We want more of you. Um, For In the Enneagram letters, I actually write a letter to type nines where I talk about, you know, like nines have this inner fire. And a lot of the nines that I know are some of the fieriest opinionated people that I know, but they like tone it down. And we talk about in the book, like, I want to warm by your fire. Like, let me see it because it's interesting and exciting to see someone be fully alive. And I want that for the, like the nines in my life make me feel so loved, make me feel so seen and so safe to be whoever I am. I want a chance to give that to you, right? Like that is the greatest honor of your friend, of of being friends with you is to get to hold that space with you. All right, let's move into type one, which is going to be our final type for today. So type one, the stereotypes that I chose for you were uptight and nitpicky. So the reframes that we have here are you're not uptight, you're just in the thick of responsibility and that is stressful. So let's talk about that one for a minute. So right, I think no one wants to be called uptight, right? It's like not a fun feeling or I think like I hear rigid a lot um, and and I think that like the the way we talk, way, the way the underneath part of, of that statement is really just like ones feel responsible for everything, being great and not great in the sense of like a three, right? Like I don't want to be the best, but I want to do it the, the best way in all areas of life, right? And so they're kind of collecting a lot of responsibilities. They feel the preciousness of all of their decisions. Like there's a good way and a bad way. And if they are not actively participating in the good way, then they're obviously doing it the bad way. And um, we use this example a lot. Someone put this in my comment section and it stuck with me for the rest of my life. So thank you if that was you. And that's the idea of like all of the balls are glass. Like, okay, you're juggling all of these balls. All of the balls are glass, meaning they all need extreme precious attention. And that's freaking exhausting. So of course, it feels so mind-boggling when someone is just acting a fool or our schedule gets thrown off or plans get canceled or things are derailed. It's like, I don't have time for this. I have a deadlines. I have things that I have to do. My All of these things I'm holding are precious and I can't hold them forever, right? So it can feel that way. Now, obviously what we've been kind of talking about is why it looks uptight to others, right? It 
looks uptight to others because the response to the unknown, a response to an unexpected encounter is not, you know, the the wave your arms and the wind like a palm tree. It's like tensity. It's frustration. It's irritation. And that can appear uptight. Now they don't hear, they don't have the context of what's happening beneath the surface to recognize that like you're tired, you're overburdened, you're working too hard and you're holding yourselves to impossibly high standards. And so they're just kind of seeing you look uptight or rigid. So if we want to kind of like work with this and loosen, (laughs) um, loosen a little, One way that we can do that is, of course, determining which balls are actually glass and then which balls are plastic that when they fall, they'll bounce back up. I cannot thank you enough to the person who put that in my comments. It has changed my entire life and hopefully lots of lives of lots of other uh, non-flexible beings um, like me (laughs) in the world. Um, The other thing to consider here is I told this to a type eight client today and I was just kind of like, what what would it look like to call your capacity at the point of which you have to use stress? You guys have heard me talk about this before, that this is like a practice that I'm using, which is like, okay, if I'm using stress to get my day done, then I have too big of a day. I, that is beyond my capacity. And how do you limit your capacity, lower your export to match what you can accomplish without relying on stress to get it done? For me, I will tell you, it took my productivity down to like 30, 40% which is terrifying, right? If you're someone who relies on your ability to get things done and do them well, terrifying. But it really puts in perspective what you're expecting of yourself and what you're expecting of your body to tolerate consistent stress and rely on those, those stress hormones every single day. It's too much. And it's going to make you look uptight, right? Like if you don't want to be called uptight, like take care of yourself. (laughs) I'm I'm kind of being saucy. But, you know, it's like those two things do feed each other. While I'm not going to out here be like type ones are uptight because I know it's more complex than that, I do know that it appears that way because you need to take care of yourself and take on less. All right. You aren't nitpicky. You just would want to know if you made a mistake. So you tell other people if you believe they've made a mistake. And this is an interesting one because, you know, I understand why this happens, right? I've had so many type ones say this to me over the years. Like, I'm not trying to like nitpick you. I just think, don't we all want this to be the best that it can possibly be? So why wouldn't you like like it if I were nitpicky? The conundrum here, and I use this a lot. And when we talk to when I talk to work environments, we talk about how we give and receive feedback. Um, if I'm talking to like a corporation, and we're kind of trying to work on team building, one of the tricky things for ones is ones give feedback frequently and detailed. 
But ones are so hard on themselves already that getting feedback like that or getting negative feedback at all can feel like a punch to the gut. Like you're getting it from both sides because you're already being so hard on yourself. So adding in more criticism, it's like, I'm exhausted already. Like I can't add more on. So I want to honor that, right? And just be like, I totally get that. And let's talk about why people might perceive you as nitpicky, right? If we're giving detailed feedback consistently and frequently, every time we see something that could be improved, it feels nitpicky to other people, right? But for you, you're like, don't we want the best possible product to go out? So if I notice something that could be improved, why wouldn't I say that? And I think that's fair. And I think there's multiple solutions here, okay? Solution number one, stay in your lane. So is this your project? Is this your thing to focus on? Is this your responsibility to do well? If that's the case, be as nitpicky as you want to be, right? Be as specific as you want to be, as perfectionistic as you want to be, because we can work on that later, right? Right now we're talking about our relationship to other people and how they perceive us, but your perfectionism is your business, <laughs> it's, but it's not anyone else's problem. So if it's someone else in your life, your partner, your your children, a coworker, and it's their butts on the line, if this is not perfect and they did not ask you for advice, stay in your lane, right? Let them make mistakes. You gotta, you have to, it's not your business. Stay in your lane. Second is group your feedback together. So instead of giving frequent detailed feedback, give detailed feedback one time or when asked instead of kind of every time you see a mistake, letting them know. Maybe you need to shift behavior to where every time you see a mistake, you make a little note for yourself, you know, and you just go, okay, I'm going to put this little note here. And then at the end of the week, I'll send over one email that's like, hey, here's everything that I think could be improved. Everybody's situation is going to be very different. Everybody's life is very different. You could be, you know, thinking of this in terms of your partnership. You could be thinking of this in terms of your children. You could be thinking of this in terms of your work life, right? But stay in your lane and only give feedback. One, give feedback if it's precious, right? Like if it's like this is a glass ball, like learn to identify, is this actually something that needs to be handled with this much detail? Or is this something that can kind of be let go, right? So like a good example of this is let's talk about working with our children, just because I think that that's the easiest place for us to kind of nitpick. If my kid has a project that they're working on and they want me to proofread, good to go. If they have a project that they're working on, they're showing it to me, they're really proud of it, and they need me to encourage them, no go (laughs) on the negative feedback. Just encourage them. You weren't asked. It's not your lane. Stay in your lane and offer love. Okay? Additionally, let's say you do feel responsible for like, you you know, you're saying, okay, is my lane? 
if my kid goes to school not looking like put together or clean or cared for, maybe that's like an issue for you. Um, so they go to walk out the door and they have like a stain on their shirt. A way to do this is not to say in that moment, hey, go change your shirt. You have a stain on your shirt. But instead to come up with a system in the bigger picture for how to handle stains and how to handle like where they pick their clothes, have a bigger conversation around, hey, like let's let's find a system where your clean clothes and your dirty clothes are clearly separated. Because here's the reason for that. And I know you might be like, I'm not going to let my kid go to school with a stain on the shirt. I also know that other ones could care less. Um, I'm just picking this as an example. But let's say that you feel like, no, I cannot do that. I cannot let my kid go to school like that. The reason you can and the reason you have to is because you, the most important thing in that relationship is that that person feels loved by you and not like they are constantly letting you down. And when they feel nitpicked, even though I know for you, you're just trying to like make sure it's done best, they feel nitpicked, then they feel like they could constantly let you down. And it's the frequency of which these things are said that become the narrative in their head, right? So if they are consistently hearing, there's something wrong with you every day when you go to school, there's something wrong with you, 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 you're not paying attention, there's something wrong with you, that's going to be the voice in their head for the rest of their life, right? That's not it, right? That's not what you want. That's not That's not how we're doing it. But it it just is on autopilot. So maybe for you, instead of saying it out loud, you just make a note to yourself and you just let it go. And then if you find, okay, I've, I've made a lot of these notes, maybe this needs a system or a solution and a bigger conversation, but not every day, not every time you see it. Break the habit of frequency and stay in your lane. Okay. So yeah, I think the right move is for us to do this in a three-part series. So we will hit the head, the heart types next Wednesday and let me know how you're feeling about this episode. I feel like I'm really into the conversation of navigating how we're perceived by others with the complexity of how we understand ourselves. So talk to me on Instagram. Let me know how you're feeling. And send any questions you have into 828-338-9127. You can call or text those in there and I can answer any clarifying questions you might have. Thank you so much for being here and I will see you Friday for the next episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.